Right then, uh, we're back again. Today we're going to talk about uh, glass ceilings. What's a glass ceiling, Keenzie? What's your research you've been doing? So glass ceilings are sort of the invisible um, barriers that stop us from maybe getting to positions that we may be capable of getting to or uh, of achieving things that we have the potential uh, to achieve. So the actual phrase, glass ceiling, they've done a bit of research, and I'm sure listeners will tell me if I've uh, made a mistake, but it was used uh, by a lady called Marilyn Loden. Marilyn Loden was at a conference in 1978. She was a researcher um, that was working uh, on projects around women in the workplace, and she used it to describe the systemic barriers that occur and that um, are prevalent in and around the corporate sector that stop women from getting to the higher positions mm. within companies, which I thought was, uh, yeah, sort of a nice way of, of conceptualising exactly what it is that we're doing, not specifically related to women in this conversation, but more around a series of other sort of factors that we'll get into. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the pod we did with Maxine Blake when she talked about working in inner city schools and the barriers that those kids have towards getting out of their estates and, and and moving on and achieving something that they probably they could never thought they could achieve. And that was a really good pod, and she touched upon that with a real open heart, didn't she, if you remember back? Yeah, yeah, I do. And she talked a lot in that part about expectations, <clears throat> excuse me, which is um, really key, especially when you're working in those schools where, you know, the demographic is a little bit different in, and the social economic status of students is one that sort of has this message and this narrative around it that is, you know, you're not going to achieve what you want to achieve. You're not going to do well in school. And Maxine Blake talked about that mm -hmm. brilliantly, didn't she, in context in her experience in Sheffield. Yeah, and, and it relates to our own experiences, doesn't it, as well, where you can be in a quite a tough state school. And really, when you're looking at it back in the 1980s and sort of early 90s, we were just, I felt we were just cannon fodder for the steelworks, the, the collieries and the service sector, really, that we weren't really nothing was anticipated of us. Like interviews with careers advisors, well, <laughs> it was... It was pathetic, really, back then, when I think to what we provide now. And certainly having experienced, what, nearly coming up to 20-odd years teaching, well, 20 or 25 years teaching, and most of them now overseas, the expectations that we have of children when they're studying international school are significantly higher than those back in a in a sort of state school in a, in a low socioeconomic area. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, I've, I've been in international schools for 11 years now. And I remember really vividly at the beginning of that journey being having huge imposter syndrome of, you know, mm -hmm. teaching famous people and politicians and um, people of real positions of powers, sons and daughters, mm -hmm. and thinking, how am I doing this? <laughs> and, 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 and why should I be doing this? You know, I'm a lad from a, a state mm -hmm. school in the middle of South Yorkshire in England. Um, how am I in a position where you've got these people that are born into such privilege in yeah. your care? And, you know, there's there's pressures that come with that that are different from the UK. But to be honest with you, the vast majority of the time, children are children, mm. right? And and the more that you can appreciate the fact that they've got their own experiences and lives to live as well as you, and the more that you can remove the glass ceilings for them and some of those children on the other end of the scale, yeah, yeah. the easier that'll be. You know, obviously talking about that top end of the scale with the children that are born into privilege and born into richness, if you like, and wealth. Um, we, we could argue, couldn't you, that those glass ceilings just 
either don't apply or they're very, very different in their context to the other the other students we're talking about. I like how you've just linked glass ceilings with imposter syndrome. We've, we've talked loads about that and we've had guests, absolutely loads. And I'm more convinced now, what, three years on since we started, that that wording and the negative connotations of the imposter syndrome are actually wrong. I think there's significant benefits of imposter syndrome. Mm. It keeps you grounded, I think. Like that example you just talked about teaching all these famous kids, well, their families put them in the schools we're in to keep them grounded so that we can introduce that sort of fairness and that integrity and humility. Mm. So I think having imposter syndrome is not necessarily a bad thing. I think it makes you learn because you want to get better, don't you? Mm. I think it it sort of really... The nerves that that brings are good because it's a self-checking mechanism to make sure you are fully prepared. If you think you know it all and you think you've you've been there and you're born into privilege, I think you have that. You don't tend to have that. And what what other thing... it might look different. It might look different, yeah. Yeah, It could look different. And I do think it forces you to to seek advice. So I'm, I'm much more leaning now on it. I don't think imposter syndrome is a negative thing. I think it's a self-checking mechanism that keeps you humble and helps you to learn. And keeps you grateful. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one to add to it. Yeah. I'd probably add that to it as well because you, you're getting, you know, when you're in imposter syndrome, you're in a position that you never thought you'd be in. Now, a lot of the time, that's, well, I'm, I'm trying to think. I think most, yeah, if not all the time, it's a positive position that you're in mm. that has given you that imposter oh, yeah. syndrome. And it's a position and an opportunity that maybe you thought you never were going to have that you've suddenly got that makes you think, oh, how, how have I got here? How do I belong mm-hmm. here? And I know that you've done a lot of research around this pod into how the expectations that we put on students at an early age can really influence this. Yeah, it's it's called the Pygmalion effect. And it, well, actually, Robert Rosenthal uh, coined the phrase in 1968 for Liverpool <laughs> Ronnie in it Ronnie <laughs> Mr Northland goal that's all I remember about Ronnie Rose yeah, <laughs> but yeah the Pygmalion effects from the Shakespeare uh, play and I think as teachers we as guilty as ever having some sort of what would it be the phrase we, we like a not a prejudice but you have thoughts a bias about mm. certain children wouldn't you and, and you have to be very careful not to have that. So the research is suggesting that obviously higher expectations from the teacher leads to improved performance. Lower expectations leads to worsened performance. And the labels that you're putting on people will very much influence what they're going to achieve. So we can break that down in a, from a teaching perspective. Mm. That should be quite a cool conversation to crack on with. And we've We've probably heard of self-fulfilling prophecy, haven't we? If you you think you're rubbish at something, you generally are, aren't you? And if people keep telling you you're rubbish at something, then even more reinforced. And and that's one of the most heartbreaking things, I think, when you see children with really low self-esteem, especially Mm -hmm. children below the age of 11 or 12, because that's come from external sources that... Completely. That that is, they believe what other people have told them. Mm -hmm. And then you might spend the rest of your adolescent years trying to trying to live up to other people's expectations and opinions of you right. without actually ever forming your own. Completely. And we talk about self-awareness loads, and I know yeah, that it's a, it's, a, it's a topic we'll certainly touch on in future pods, and it'll probably be across two or three of them. But for me, self-awareness is the most important thing that you, that you have. 
it um, comes on that it, it comes on to Rosenthal. He's got a four-step cycle. It comes back in a circle. It's very interesting. So if we take it from, let's think back to when we were back in, back in Rotherham, and you you know all the sort of the trouble causes are. Even though if you've not taught them, you've heard their name. They've got brothers. They've had sisters, and they're coming through. And you've got a, a perception already, and and that's what Rosenthal says there. The step one is that others' expectations about us influence behaviour towards us, mm. which is an interesting concept. So if you've heard that they're a trouble causer, mm. you're automatically going in with that thought. Yeah, you're looking for it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the second step is that the behaviour, their behaviour towards us influences how we see ourselves. So if that teacher has had that sort of image of a trouble causer, they will have that behaviour, display that behaviour towards them, and then... It allows them to think. Actually, I am a trouble causer. So the person there, they are. They might. They might be this trouble causer. Then they start believing that they're a trouble causer. So they become I am. Yeah. The third step then is that I will then behave like one. Right. So it, how we see ourselves impacts our behaviour. So if we've everybody thinks I'm a trouble causer, I'm gonna. I am a trouble causer. Therefore, I'm gonna behave like a trouble causer. And then we've got that. Fourth step then is that your behaviour towards others influences their beliefs and just reinforces what they thought all along. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? It's just a big circle, self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it's a nice summary. And I think you you touched on it in the, in the final part there. You know, the, the people that you hang around with, the sort of six people you spend the most time with are the person that you become. You're the average of those six people, yeah. aren't you? There's been research done around that. Um, and I always I always consider that and think, well... If you're around those people that are the the creative people, the ones that take chances, the ones that are great, they've got humility and gratitude and they're they're effective, they offer something to society, they've got skills, they've got abilities, you're going to be in a far better position, aren't you, to be Mm. able to do that yourself and be able to offer something in terms of your own skills and abilities and the way that you speak and interact with other people than if you are that, you know, you're sort of annexed and mm. you see this at schools and and, and i know uh, stereotypically at sort of british schools in the, so schools in the uk that you have behavior units and isolation units and all this kind of stuff and and even the 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 tag of having those things and sending mm. children to those areas you know if you're getting sent there time and time again you feel like that's where you you deserve to be mm. and if you deserve to be there then what's the point so then that behavior is not going to get any better it's not going to go and improve is it it's like when we've talked before about on the on the board <laughs> and you've got names for you're putting their name up if they've done something naughty or not behavioural, well that's labelling straight away mm. and promoting the negative behaviour mm. and then they rise up to that. Mm. Very rare that you'd t- ever take that off. And that we've gone the other way, haven't we? Looking at can we promote the good behaviour? Can we put positive notes up on the board? Can we be sending positive notes home? Um it makes me think back to, in fact, it was Zach today asked me. He was having a few, uh, some of his mates who have gone back to the UK, some are still in the Philippines, and he was thinking about his social groups that he hangs around. He said, well, Dad, why didn't, why didn't you really drink or smoke or get into trouble? I was like, well, I a shoplift as well, I think he mentioned. Throw that in there. I said, well, I don't know, Zach, to be quite honest. It's, it's an interesting one because all my mates did drink 
smart, get into trouble, well, poorly behaved at school. And I do, you try and break that down as to why I didn't. I honestly don't know. I must have had something inside to say, you know what, I'm going to get out of here. I'm not going to do that. Mm. And I didn't jump on the, I wasn't easily influenced by peer pressure, whereas some people really are, aren't they? Yeah. I preferred the positive affirmation yeah. from very rarely the teachers that we had, rather than I really didn't like getting in trouble. I would have been mortified if I'd have been picked up in a police car or anything like that. I, would, I don't know. I just had this real fear of getting into massive trouble. Yeah. I don't even know where that came from. I wonder if it comes from your sort of respect of hierarchy. You are maybe. a respectful person. And, and then your football gave you a bit of purpose, Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But I, You had something to aim for. Yeah, you think, how, how do these kids in these areas, how do you, they want to belong, don't they? Mm. So therefore, when we look at that cycle that Rosenthal suggests, they they want to be in a social group. They want to belong. They want to be part of something. Mm. So they <laughs> modify their behaviours to make sure that they fit into that group. Mm. And then to make sure they do fit, they perform to what that group norms are, and then they become that group, and everybody then associates them with that group. Mm. So the behaviours they get classed with, they get tarred with the same brush, I think we use it, don't we? So is the message there, you've always got to be self-aware enough oh, to, to understand where you fit, but also willing to learn that you that might change as you get older? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Because you know, it, it happens, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, if, if you take your example there of your self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, there are people who've 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 gone been in real lows in their life. You know, let's talk about people um such as your man who Darren Davis had yeah. in uh, in jail. What was his name again? John John McAvoy. John McAvoy, um, you know, hardened criminal. Um, yeah, incredible. In, Great story. In, in prison for years and years and years. And now after a lot of self-reflection and a, a lot of literally time to, to, to think about what he was doing is a different man and a different story. So it can change and those glass ceilings exist. And I think one of the things that I'll always remember just to start to bring this now into sort of school examples is listening to a head of sixth form that I used to work with who would start off a welcome assembly for year 12 at the beginning of the year. They've just got into sixth form with... Um, basically the line that um, before you start dreaming, you'll never go to Oxford or Cambridge, so get that out of your head right now. And I was like, wow, wow. Glass ceiling. <laughs> talk about glass ceiling. That's not even a glass ceiling, that is it. That's a that's a, a big, dark, um, black, heavy ceiling that, that's been, well, been a realist? thrown at you straight away. Well, this is, this is it, isn't it? Because that statement as a whole is not factually correct, you know. So, Did anybody ever go to Oxford or Cambridge? From I don't school? know. I'd, I'd have to have a look. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that it is possible. Yeah, it is possible. Yeah, so fact, factually, it's wrong for a start. Yeah. And, and whether that takes away kids' dreams. But at the same time, yeah, of course you need to be realistic. And of course, the chances in getting a, into a highly esteemed um, university like that are incredibly slim. Mm. But that's not you'll never go. Mm. You know, and they're very, very different things. Um Having a having a look at the research around this as well, I mentioned the sort of female and, and gender ceiling earlier, and there's a lady called Claudia Golden, I follow on Twitter, who does a lot of stuff around this. And she actually um, gives very sort of uh, contrasting views. So she does this from a very sort of objective way of saying, well, you know, this is the argument that says that there are glass ceilings more for females. These are the arguments as to why those might exist, which might compound onto the reason that they're there. And I feel like that same argument and that same two-way look at these things 
needs to be considered when you talk about you know cultural factors because when you look at culture and religion and ethnicity there are things that could be um helpful there and there are certainly things that really couldn't be helpful depending on the demographic and the culture that you're in you know there's lots of talk around cultural stereotypes um the unconscious bias that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. prejudice and discrimination and i feel like unconscious bias prejudice and discrimination are three things that are constantly misunderstood because unconscious bias is massive. If you're not aware and you're not educated and you, you don't understand, you can be incredibly insensitive, which then is displayed or labelled as discrimination or prejudice, which actually very well might not be. But then the other opposite can be true. You can be very discriminative and hold prejudices and sort of palm them off as unconscious biases. And I think there can be a dangerous relationship between those two things. And I think certainly your upbringing influences those. Mm. You know, I think back to some of the stuff I did in A-level psychology about um, how people felt when they saw photos of other people. And when the photos of other people that didn't look like themselves came up, they couldn't measure a feeling of sort of connection there. But when they looked like the person that was doing the test, there was more of a connection. There was more of an emotional brain response to what they were seeing on the screen. You can't undo that. No. Right? If people look and sound like you, that connection is probably going to be easier and quicker. Um, But what I think we need to get better at as a world, and, you know, current climate and events considered, as I say this, is actually understanding what what those prejudices, discriminatory opinions, and, and which parts are unconscious bias, which parts are cultural stereotypes, which parts are cultural, ethnical, religious yeah. factors which parts are political disagreements and actually have perspectives that can be considered and perspectives that are allowed to be flexible. Yeah, so it's a really good point. And I think coming back to that study that you, you've talked about with with looking at gender, it was interesting because mm-hmm. Damon Hughes talks about this a lot, that when people go for promotions, significantly different in in the gender opinions are going for uh, in a promotion. And and women are actually less likely to have a go for it. They think about the, I can't do it. I'm not quite ready yet. It's not, not right for me at this moment in time. Which is, it's been, it's been proven in studies. And, and whereas men are more likely to have a go and work it out once they get there. Now that's interesting, isn't it? How... How they've worked that out, and I, it, for me, it, we we work with very powerful females here, don't we? We've got we've got uh, head of schools that that is probably the, one of the few females in Saudi Arabia to be in that sort of leadership position. Our it's principles, a really good point. We've our got principals are, are female. All three yeah. of our, our director yeah. of schools and, and and our principals for the two um, through schools, the two large campuses. Yeah, all female. And yeah, then our director of schools when she came on the pod, if you remember rightly. She just said, have a go. You've probably got the skills. You just don't think it. Just mm. have a go. Other people believe in you. And it's yourself that sort of lets you down, doesn't it? It comes back to that self-fulfilling prophecy. And and it links in really well with Carol Dweck's work, doesn't it? Like, I can't do something. We had those three-letter words on it. Just yet. I can't do it yet. And it brings me back to that COVID time when I... I've never skateboarded that before. Never, never. I thought it was something I could never do. Yeah. Didn't like it. And I was 
think, oh, skateboarders, they're not, they're not games players, they can't play football or anything like that. And then... Stereotyping. Yeah, just stereotyping. Trousers, yeah, because yeah, cause it wasn't me. It wasn't my belonging. It wasn't my group. Yeah. And I couldn't do it. So when often now we you can't do something, you discount it then, don't you? you? think, that's not for me. But then I saw my daughter do it and I'm good she was. And, and, and I had a go. And I really loved it. And I, and I enjoyed it. And then it was like, oh, kind of. And I remember having the same with skiing. I... I never was fortunate enough to go skiing as a kid because we were skiing. So it was, oh, skiing's not for me, even though I really wanted to do it always. But then learning at 24, 25, tough, mm. compared to seeing my kids do it since they've been five years old. Mm. But it's the glass ceilings. Again, isn't it? They've had no glass ceilings. I had a glass ceiling that I knew I could never go skiing, therefore that will not for me. I'm not good at it. No. Do you know what I mean? And you did hundreds of exit points from what you just said, but you've mentioned a couple of things. One of them there about you being skin and finances. Yeah, yeah. That, that, creates, that creates ceilings that yeah. aren't there. And it might not even be poverty. It's just you might live comfortably, but just not have the access and yeah, the opportunity to, um, to to be able to have the money to spend on the things yeah, that are at that higher level. It reminds me of um, the, the thing you were saying about females um, and they're more less likely to have a go than males. I think there's there's so much depth to that that is easy to just sort of palm off on maybe um, biology of gender. Yeah. I just I think it's nonsense, by the way. It's just yeah. the research that's been done. I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book at the minute called um, Behave by Robert Sapolsky. Oh, uh, yes, I've read that. Have you? Yeah. Brutal book, though. I tell you what. I tell <laughs> it's you what. Wow. But it, it talks about the chemical, the biological, and the psychological uh, impacts of why we behave in the way mm. we behave. So to take your example of of women maybe not taking the risks men did, you know, I'm not sure about the biology and the chemistry within that, but just to talk purely on the psychological side for a moment, you know, if you've got an experience and previous experiences of, of, of seeing that prejudice and that discrimination and women not being able to give the opportunity and the time to be able to do something and do it well, then you're not going to put yourself in that position where you can be pointed at in that way and you can be held to account for something that you feel, you know, you haven't got a chance in sort of succeeding in. So I, I get it. And I think there are reasons for a lot of these things as to why people do hold themselves back. But I think what we should start to look at now is from a school point of view, forget holding yourself back for a moment and let's think about what we can do as educators to support children to be able to smash these glass ceilings, really, and to be able to say, well, yeah, we know they exist, we can acknowledge them, but actually it doesn't matter to me. Completely agree. I'm just looking there from, from your perspective about perception holding yourself back. And then I love this expression I've, I've heard on podcast recently about how success leaves clues, doesn't it? Mm. So if you are putting yourself in a position where you're trying to go for something else or... Great example with kids. I'm not going to do very well on this test. I'm no good at maths. Okay, so but, let's break this down. Why are you not, Why do you perceive you're not very good at maths? Before you get to that point, that does two things saying that, doesn't it? Well, it, it puts for, it in your mind. For, 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 for the child psychologically, mm -hmm. that does two things. I'm not going to do very well in this test. I'm not very good at maths. It gives them two, two opportunities. One is... Well, if they do well now, they can be like, oh, wow, I think I do well. Yeah, I do well. I didn't think I'd do very well. But it also allows them the second way of this, which is, well, if I say that and I don't do well, I'm managing my expectations and yeah, it's yeah. not a surprise to anyone. Yeah. Uh, and then what you're talking about comes in, doesn't it? Yeah. It drives me mad when 
kids come to you and they are, are, they've scored a low mark and they're upset about it. And you're trying to go through the whole accountability. Well, what have you done? How did you prepare for that? Mm. Uh, well, I looked at my book last night. I said, well, is that enough? Can we break that down further? How did you prepare for that test that you had? Yeah, I looked through, I read my notes. Well, did you practice in a way that the test is going to be administered? Yeah. If you know you're going to get this, this, and this, have you gone through your exam questions on this? Have you got someone working with you to test you on that? Are you doing retrieval practice from, from two, three months ago? Have you been studying little chunks every night? These are all questions. When the answer is no, well, it comes back to that success leaves clues. There are no clues, are there? You've just sat in your lesson. You've maybe not understood it. You've just got on, got on, got on. And then clearly you're not going to do very well because you haven't put the work in. And I find it hard in today's generation. I think there's a lot of instant success yeah. without the realisation that it's actually hard graft. Or even perceived overnight success yeah yeah you know social media stars they think oh they just put a few videos out and they've got millions of followers but actually a lot of these people have been doing this for years and years and years and graphically youtubers mate they what our kids don't realize is that the the drafts the redrafts the ethics of excellence that ron berger talks about yeah they absolutely graft to get good quality material out there Mm. it's like looking at the f2 freestylers when and dude perfect their videos come out and they're doing amazing trick shots, aren't they? Yeah. They don't realise that there's probably been a thousand takes yeah. before hours, to get yeah. that hours, right. Hours, yeah. Like the content that they've produced is phenomenal. And then there's only for every what? It's like football. Being a fresh football, it's probably what? 0.01% of YouTubers that probably go on and make it into this KSI level. Yeah. be interesting to see a stat on that. You mentioned accountability. Accountability is big, isn't it? And I think that links into... Um, a conversation about resilience. I think resilience is so often misunderstood in schools for me. I think... It's a buzzword, pal, isn't it? Well, when some people talk about resilience, they think about, well, we'll just give children ever-increasing challenges (laughs) and they'll become more resilient. I don't think it works quite as well as that. And I also... I'm also aware that in school, there's only so much that we can do because real resilience is from tragedy and trauma. Now, we're never going to deliberately recreate tragedy and draw trauma in school on a level that's going to be able to build resilience. But the way that I think we can build resilience in school is by giving people the patience and kindness and support that they need. You only become resilient if you're in a place where you're supported and, and helped by the people around you. No one builds resilience from just being in really difficult situations one day after another, after another, after another from a young age. It, it can't happen like that. You know, that's just taking and taking and taking and taking and taking from that young person's um, sort of pool of what they can deal with. You've got to be able to refill that with something. And that comes from the love and the support, the kindness and the patience, the mentoring, the coaching of the people around them. Obviously, some of that's from home, the vast majority, of course. But within school, I think we have a responsibility of creating that as well. To use your test example, to sort of hammer home this point a little bit more, you your child who's not who's a bit worried about their maths test, who goes and sits the maths test, who doesn't do well on the maths test, is not going to respond well and get more resilient by giving an, another maths test that afternoon or the next morning or the day after and the day after that and the day after that. What they actually need is some support, guidance, and patience, some expertise, some teaching, which is what we're there for, 
to help them get more confident. When they get more confident and more comfortable, then they can maybe do well on their maths test. But when there is one where they don't do so well, they've actually got enough about them in terms of resilience to be able to take that on the chin and to think, well, actually, I've got enough around me in terms of support and confidence to realise that, okay, I can bounce back from this. That bounce back ability of resilience can't happen if that support isn't there. So it'd be no use saying to that, that child there, are you just reinforcing the fact that you're not very good, you're going to fail your GCSE maths, you're a waste of time. Right? That's the brass tax there, is that we've got to try and reverse that, saying at this moment, you're finding maths a little bit challenging, we're going to put these things in place for you, and you will do better in the future mm. with some hard work. Mm. So there's a lot of layers there, isn't there? It's not going to just say, oh, everything's all right. That's not. That's actually not very good. No, it's, it's not all right. You know, if, not, if, they, yeah. if they need to get to a certain level of whatever their targets are, you know, that's what they want to get to. Then, yeah, it, it's not all right. You, you've fallen below expectations, but it's also not the end of the world. Mm. You know, um, a bit of failure is all right, isn't it? This is what we've talked about before. And, and again, that's what builds resilience. That keyword there is a bit. You're failing all day, every day, unless you're turning around and then turning into David Goggins, who apparently failed at everything all the time, ever, forever, and then turned out to be the most resilient man in the world, which, you know, read into that what you will. I think you're in a position where you, you're going to find it really difficult if you are failing time and time and time again, which, you know, we know as educators, we differentiate within our class. We make sure that children, um, the work that we're giving them is adaptive, our teaching's adaptive, our questioning differs, our expectations of children in the classroom differ from one to another and I think that that's the right thing to do I think that's a good thing but it doesn't necessarily mean that we always get it right completely agree there's a for me some of the most successful people in the world have had a bit of trauma aren't they do you know what I mean and you think back to our conversation with Sean uh, Sean Sherwood and yes the trauma that he went through and, and He's a good bloke and he's helping others now. Great bloke, yeah. Yeah, it is like the trauma that um, Andy Vasily had when we did our pod with him. We talked about his family and the the the, the, the substance abuse and the, the, the suicide involved in his family and brilliant guy helping others. Yeah. So there is a little bit of trauma there and there is a lot made about post-traumatic stress disorders. And again, it's like coming back to um, imposter syndrome I think there's negative connotations, but I also think there's a lot of positive from having failure, having some stress, having some trauma. Because yeah. I do feel in these last, particularly after COVID, there's a there's a bubble around kids, and we don't want them to experience stress or failure. And even from my perspective as a dad now of, of teenagers, I don't want them to go through the same things I had to go through, but. When I look back now, it actually didn't do him any harm. I don't want them to have that, but it didn't do me any harm. So it's made me more streetwise. It's made me more grateful. It's made me adaptable. It made me see situations differently mm. that they're not going to be able to see because they haven't gone through that getting on a school bus and being frightened that you're going to get hammered. <laughs> yeah. they, they haven't been through it. And right or wrongly, well, does don't make them any like better or worse, but it makes that they did they've not lived those experiences. No. And they never, well, they never will as far as living overnight overseas puts them. And it's hard, even if you're the most empathic person in the world, it's really difficult if you haven't lived it yourself to completely understand it, right? 
So if, if we sort of continue on a, just to finish up here on a sh short little list of the things we can do in school or that we believe that we can do in school to sort of remove this idea of these glass ceilings or at least appreciate that they can be smashed and they can be broken through. I think self-belief and confidence is a key one. We've talked about accountability and making sure that children understand their accountability for what they do. Um, resilience and, and its link to self-belief and confidence and in many respects, um, accountability as well. I think we've got a role as educators to um, really celebrate diversity and inclusion. One of the things that I, I always come back to is is how very different my perspective is on everything as a result of moving internationally um, and not living in a, in a small town in Northern England anymore. And that's no disrespect to a small town in Northern England. I love it. I go back all the time. Love the people there. But it doesn't give you the the lens, the wide lens on the world that, that moving and traveling and being international does. Our international day at school the other day, you know, 91 nationalities. Yeah, unbelievable. I, I don't so think I could name 91 countries <laughs> now if you put me on the spot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, yeah. I, I consider myself pretty well travelled. Um, Let me add three on to that. Yeah. So for, for educators, I, I really think it's important we have high expectation of values and effort, not just performance. Yeah, great one. Yeah. That's what makes human beings, to be honest. The, also, the, the second thing, I remember doing this as a young teacher, making the mistake of saying, oh, you're not like your brother, are you? Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Comparison is the thief yeah. of joy. I love that phrase. Do yeah. not compare. Yeah. Even kids in their peer groups, don't compare them to each other. They're not the same. Yeah. And that sort of leads on to kids develop at different rates. Yeah. You just plant in that seed you, you never see growing. We know that anatomically, psychologically, boys particularly don't really come into their own until their 20s. Right. They don't really find who they are and, and maybe they shouldn't be really at school or doing the things we expect of them at 15 and 16 when really they come together much later on as well, as probably as, as we've done as adults as well. So they're my three, really. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave us with another three that you just made me think about then. I think the next one is is for me is opportunities. Give children opportunities that they might not necessarily normally have. Now I appreciate yeah, I appreciate how difficult that might be, especially financially and resources-wise for some schools, but find ways of exposing children to situations they just never would be. Yeah, and, you know, look, think how different that is. In the UK, you'd be trying to expose children to opportunities that they can't afford, and there's so many different funds in the UK that support children to go and do that. The Over internationally, we have the opposite problem, where you're trying to create rough, tough, mm. difficult situations for children that... Um, are sort of the opposite, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. The opposite problem. Um, and then I'd leave with the last couple, one of them being leadership, and again, probably a link here with Sean Sherwood and the great work he's doing, but how leadership can support students in understanding more about themselves and the confidence that they've got and what they're capable of. And leadership comes in so many guises and forms. And, you know, we obviously have such an advantage with our perspective in sport and how sport brings yeah. out the best and obviously sometimes the worst in individuals but from a leadership point of view putting children in those positions and making them responsible for results that they get immediate feedback on is enormous service comes into that massively yeah and then the last one i'd live with uh, i'd leave with is um get find opportunities for children to find their strengths it's sir ken robinson yeah yeah definitely. great sir ken robinson 
Um, one of the things that he said that I, I always really enjoyed was this idea of, you know, children don't know um, necessarily if they're clever. We don't, we can't tell a student whether they're clever or not. We just need to find out what it is that what they're, they're clever at. They're clever yeah. at. You know, you can't ask a fish to climb a tree yeah. sort of analogy. Yeah, I love that. So find a way around it, build a relationship with a kid that works out what it is that makes them tick and what they engage with. Cause there'll be something hmm. somewhere. And if we're not doing that, then, you know, we probably are writing off children because they can't do X, Y, and Z in these subjects. So you're going to go yeah. and work here, there, or over there. Good point. Well done, mate. Yeah. That's uh, our sort of take and, and perspectives and summary on um, on glass ceilings. And I think that's one that's got... We've had a lot of information shared in that, and I feel yeah. like we'll come back to that. Yeah, definitely. I think there's plenty to go at. Um, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, let us know what you think as ever, and uh, see you soon.